prepared or brace for impact. Prepare for unconventional money moves for the Mavericks who dare to defy the status quo. Introducing the financial dynamo himself, Joshua Kraftchik. Welcome back, everyone. I am super happy to have author of Chaos, Tom, Tom O'Neill, with us today. And we were, we were chatting. Good, man. Uh, we were chatting before the show started, and I, I was just telling Tom, I, I wanted to have him on because it took him 20 years to write this book, and I feel like most people give up on something after two days. So I'm really excited to hear about the process of never giving up on something you believe in. And chatting and learning about what Tom knows about uh Charles Manson and the what was it the MK Ultra group among other things yeah <laughs> amongst who knows what else we'll get into yeah, so like yeah. i know um Tom's story was he got approached about the book and you weren't interested in the book and then you somehow got uh wrapped up in a 20 year adventure yeah i got asked to do a magazine story i was a journalist and mostly doing uh, entertainment reporting with some investigative stuff, but mostly about the entertainment business. And they asked me just to do kind of a generic story on what was then going to be the 30th anniversary of the Tate LaBianca murders in 99. And long story short, I started uncovering information about the case and mostly about the prosecution of the Manson family for it that hadn't been reported before and indicated that a lot of stuff might have been kind of withheld from the public about, you, you know, the Manson family's farther reach and other people's reach into the family. Uh, and the whole thing kind of became this rabbit hole of different conspiracies that I fell down. The magazine story was never published. I got a book deal uh and it became a book project and after about seven or eight years the book publisher got impatient and they canceled the deal and they sued me for the return of the advance which kind of put a halt on at least me trying to sell the book but i could still report it um i had to fight the case in court get a pro bono lawyer and once that was resolved meaning they got their money back but in, in a different way than they wanted it they only get it if uh, I resold the book rather than just being able to take it from me uh, from my, whatever I made the rest of my life, which probably would have mean that I, if I hadn't published the book, I'd still be in debt to them now because they had given me a lot. So then I resold it. And then finally it came out in 2019 and I thought that would be the end of it, but little did I know I fell right back in and I'm working on a follow-up book now. Follow-up book to unravel yeah, yeah. the uh loose ends that were yeah yeah trying, well, I actually i haven't committed to it yet um but i've been reporting it since the book came out so for jesus another five years now which is scary uh i've been reporting more and if i get enough of the missing pieces then um we'll do the second book my collaborator and i and my original publisher they all want it but i don't want to do it unless the second book is more definitive than the first, because in the first, I mostly lay out a lot of possibilities. 
that I can prove, you know, things happen differently. And, and then, but I never found really the ultimate smoking gun I was looking for, uh, which is fine because it does still, I mean, I, I present a lot of information that is all again, completely documented, but it's frustrating when you can't have a period at the end of that sentence. So if I can do that, there'll be a second book. And with the, with the first book, at what point did you get like sucked into this? <laughs> really early. I mean, probably with one of my first interviews, which was with the prosecutor, uh, Vincent Bugliosi, who not only prosecuted the case and became kind of a national hero in, in 1970-71 when he put these monsters behind bars, but then he wrote a book about it, which to this day is still the best-selling true crime crime book of all time, Helter Skelter. And, and that became also a TV movie, which was the highest rated TV movie up to that point, two-part series. And then he went on to a successful career as a public speaker and author. He ran for a couple offices and it really kind of created, um, he became a really well-known figure, but my book takes apart his case. And early on in the reporting, he slipped up in a couple inter well, in the first interview with me and said something that inadvertently, I'm sure he didn't intend it, kind of gave away the game and showed that he there was stuff in there that was important that he had manipulated. And that sent me down a path. I still was hoping it was going to be a magazine story for the first year and a half. And the magazine kind of got hooked on my reporting, too. And the editor in chief put me on this special contract where all I did was work on this one story and I got paid by the month for about a year and a half before he got fired by the uh, the board of the the media conglomerate that owned it for spending all the money on me. So it was, it's that kind of, the book also is written in the first person. So it's not just about what I'm finding, but also about how other people are reacting to it as I find it and the obstacles that pop up, you know, Bugliosi started threatening me and getting really crazy with uh, the kind of things he said he was going to do to stop my book and to stop me. So it's a real crazy roller coaster ride. Yeah, it, it seems like it would have been pretty easy to throw in the towel at some point. Well, yeah, believe me, I would <laughs> quite, quite often I would just stop in my tracks and say, all right, enough, I can't do this anymore. But the problem is once you've started and you've really invested so much already of your life and time, even when you're, you know, I was running out of money, I was getting sued, there were lots of threats of lawsuits and actually physical threats. But you just at some point, and this is where everybody like me, for better or worse, gets, you know, you can get ruin your life is you have to prove that you were right the whole time. And I got stuck to it. And luckily, I'm one of the people that came out at the other end. You know, I know I've met quite a few who start something for a couple of years and it defines their whole life and they never get out of it. They never have anything to show for it, unfortunately. And um, that's what I was worried was happening to me. I mean, the saving grace really was getting a, a great collaborator, I think, who was able to kind of pull me out of the weeds, help me go through everything and present the book with me in a, not a crazy fashion that people actually seem to like. Yeah, too many people start something but don't see it out to its conclusion. Yeah, and I just couldn't whether, do whether that. Whether you're being sued or yeah, all sorts of crap that you went through, uh, yeah. you just 
we're going to persevere no matter what, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I had to. And, you know, I didn't have a family, kids, anything like that. And I put that on a shelf thinking again, it's just one more year, one more year. But if I were like you and I had a responsibility to a wife every night and a little child, I, I never would have been able to do it because it completely consumes you like 24 seven. You're taking phone calls in the middle of the night. You're running off in the car to different parts of the state or country and i actually went to britain for a few interviews um so i don't know if i they asked me to do it again i don't know if i would it was too much of a sacrifice yeah and this book is definitely eye-opening and pretty crazy about the story about like charles manson and mk ultra i was always like curious about charles manson did you ever like find out how he was basically a psychopath, but he could still stand trial. Was that like all part of like what you found or didn't find? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, he refused to put on an insanity defense and his mm. first lawyers wanted that. And he said he wasn't insane and, you know, he's never really been officially diagnosed because um, he would never submit to the psychiatric testing. You know, at some point, I think in the 80s or 90s when he was in prison, uh, he did get diagnosed as schizophrenic, uh, that kind of thing. But even those diagnoses came with the caveat that it wasn't an official diagnosis because Manson wouldn't, I don't know how they actually do it. I guess there's lots of testing involved and whatnot. He would never do that. The problem with him is he was actually really bright, very uneducated, you know, had barely like a fifth or sixth grade education. Uh, but he uh, w was really canny. You know, he's a con artist, really smart that way. Uh, and I was only able to interview him on the phone because the one year that he agreed to speak to me in the first or second year, he was always in solitary confinement. And he was only allowed out like once a week to do phone calls. And even then he wasn't allowed to have visitors. So uh, it was frustrating because if anybody's ever seen an interview with him, he plays games, you know, verbal gymnastics and speaks in riddles. And I really thought that if I were in the same room as him, I could cut that to the quick and get, you know, just throw stuff at him that he'd have to kind of try to answer. And you know, having said that, I've seen some of the best interviewers not be able to do that, you know, from Tom Snyder to Geraldo Rivera in his day was a pretty good interviewer. Uh, so maybe it wouldn't have happened. But um, one of the most telling moments was he had a third party on the outside, a guy called Grey Wolf, who would uh, handle all of his media inquiries, and he'd listen in on all the calls and tape them. And after one contentious conversation, when Manson hung up on me and was really upset and said to stop asking him certain questions, uh, Gray Wolf got on and he said, you know, you can't talk to the old man like that, Tom. He really is going to doesn't like that. And you could be in danger. And I said, I'm not asking him anything that I think is unfair. And he said, here, listen to this audio that, you know, that I have of 10 minutes ago. And after you, after you got off the phone, he was complaining about you. So he plays me this monologue from Manson where he sounded so coherent and sensible like he's talking to his attorney saying, you know, this guy's trying to get me to admit that I knew about it. And I said, wait, wait, why can't I get that, Charlie? Why do I have to get the nonsensical, rambling, crazy, Charlie? Clearly, this is all an act. 
and that was important but um i never got it well i don't want to spoil the book but you'll see what i did and didn't get from him in those interviews is it creepy to have just like tapes of charles manson at your like that you could just well, the listen creepiest to thing was the, yeah the very first night that i interviewed him it was at nighttime uh and i my editor at the magazine at the time didn't want his people to have my home information my address or phone number so she made me do it at the magazine offices in in los angeles where i was living uh so i went in there after hours and got in and used one of the uh, reporter's phones and, I, and it's like nine o'clock and i'm waiting i can't remember he had to call me at that phone and all of a sudden i realized it was valentine's day and i thought oh my god my valentine's date is charlie manson how, how bad does it get but when i he called me and I picked up and, and I said, hey, happy, happy Valentine's Day, Charlie. And he said, hey, man, thanks a lot. Same to you. And I, I'm probably the only person that said happy Valentine's Day to Charlie Manson in 40 or 50 years before he died. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's definitely something you could share as a icebreaker, fun fact. Yeah, yeah, it's on my Insta, my social media page. I put a, I put the audio up there. Uh, it's somewhere buried in my postings. I, I was at a wedding in Britain one year in the early 2000s, and there was another guest at the wedding who was in his 80s or 90s. And when he was a little Jewish kid in uh, Germany, Hitler bought him an ice cream cone. So they had a, a competition at the wedding to see who had the worst brush with evil, he or me. And he won almost unanimously because Hitler buying you an ice cream cone, especially when you're a little Jewish kid and he doesn't know you're Jewish. And me just saying happy Valentine's Day to Charlie. Uh, that guy won the prize. Yeah. And being he like plays these games and there hasn't been any uh, official diagnosis. Does anyone like know why he carved that swastika in his forehead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He explained it when he did it. Uh, he had said he was Xing himself out of society. So he did that during the trial, and it wasn't a swastika originally. It was an X. He didn't turn mm. it into a swastika until he was in prison. So he carved an X into his forehead, and then his followers did the same thing. You know, he had, there was kind of a vigil every day at the courthouse where anywhere from five to 15 of his family members would sit in a circle and sing and just wait for hopefully him to be freed or exonerated. And they all carved the X's in their heads. And then when he did it in prison, what remained of the following, they, you know, added the little corner. So it was a swastika at that point. Hmm. Always wondered. But the X was sure represented. He, he, the X represented him Xing himself out of society. Hmm. Very uh, artistic of him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at him, he has people who think he was very profound. And every now and then, it, you you will see a quote by him that almost seems pretty prophetic, you know, where he'll say stuff that sounds like he had insight into stuff that was hap going to happen 20 or 30, 50 years later about race wars and things like that. I mean, maybe he was kind of a savant uh, on the spectrum genius in, in a way, but also pretty horrible guy. Yeah, because when he was originally in prison, didn't they they taught him like how to win friends and influence people? Like, well, and he got a he hold went of the book. And... That was one of his bibles. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're right. He yeah he got a hold of the book, and then they were teaching courses in Dale Carnegie, 
that was in the early 60s when he was in, in prison in Washington at, at McNeil Island. Uh, and again, there were all these discrepancies, you know, some of the jailers and some of the people who were in charge of Manson when he was in custody said he couldn't read. He had like a fifth, like a first, third grade reading level, but apparently he read that book. He read the Bible. He read Robert Heinlein's book, Stranger from a Strange Land, or this stuff was told to him. There's so many stuff, things I never was able to really figure out what was true and what wasn't, which is what was so frustrating for all the reporting I did on this. Yeah, like we you able to identify like how he got out of parole and who was like, was he just out there like on his own accord? Was he like working with people? Was, well, what was that like? Yeah. I mean, really the crux of my book examines the two years he was out of prison in the late sixties when he transformed from Charlie Manson, this kind of short con artist from West Virginia into Charlie Manson, this guru type um, evil leader who could get people to go out and kill on command. Uh, and during the two years of, of his freedom from 67 to 69, the first year he had a first year and a half, he had a parole officer named Roger Smith, who um, that's a big chunk of the book is I, I started getting doing FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests to the Bureau of Prisons for Manson's parole records and nobody had ever asked for them before or if they had they hadn't fought for them because they had never released them and my dad was a lawyer and luckily he I kind of pulled him into the vortex and against his best you know intentions he got he started saying yeah you know I'm reading the laws here and they have to release this stuff to you so I would write a letter about what I wanted and then he'd go over the letter and put it all in legalese and over the period of about a year and a half, they, I started getting the slow drip drip of releases. And I found out that, you know, during his first year, his probation officer, Roger Smith, was very aware that Manson not only was continuing to commit crimes when he was up in the Bay Area, but he was building this family of young women, some of them underage, who he was using as prostitutes, you know, getting them involved in petty. He, he created a crime family. It was mostly petty up there, and you know, but it became what they became a year later in Los Angeles. But this was with the federal government's knowledge because Roger Smith had to report everything back to the main offices. So I, I, I had this, the letters and the, and and the status reports, and that's when I started wondering: was was Manson being enabled um, to do what he was doing, and if so, why? And you asked about MK Ultra, and there was another program called COINTELPRO, which was run by the FBI. There were two of these secret operations that were born, really. Well, MK Ultra began in the uh, late 40s, early 50s. That was a mind control program by the CIA, where they were testing drugs and other means of coercion on unsuspecting Americans, you know. Um, they had safe houses set up in the Haight-Ashbury and New York City where they would lure, prostitutes would lure Johns in and then dose them with LSD and they'd be observed by CIA doctors from one-way mirrors or, or they'd film them and they were trying to learn how to control people's behavior. So that was going on from about 1949 to 1973. And in the middle of all this, Manson learned to do exactly what they were doing and wanted to do, which was to create programmed assassins 
Um, and he, at the time he evolved into this, you know, genius manipulator, he was going to the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, a private clinic open to provide medical care for runaways and people who had come to San Francisco during the summer of love in 67. And Roger Smith, just his parole officer, was coincidentally doing a drug research program there. And one of his colleagues, Louis West, Jolly West, was actually working in the CIA's MKUltra operation. So there's kind of like this merging of um, official agencies, Charles Manson, and then Manson blossoms into exactly what MKUltra was trying to create, someone or someone who could do what they wanted. And also, um, COINTELPRO was an FBI operation that was kind of the counterpart. They weren't using drugs, to my knowledge, or coercion, but they were trying to use false information and infiltration to dismantle and neutralize the left-wing movement. And their first target was the Panthers, who really, you know, were born in Oakland in, in about 65, and by 67 had become this national, actually international group that was in the eyes of J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI, Lyndon Johnson, who was the president, Ronald Reagan, who was the governor of California, uh, the greatest threat to American stability, um, you know, since the Civil War, and they needed to dismantle it. So it, it's hard to kind of talk about it in the nutshell, but if you read the book, you see how everything that kind of happened with Manson, 68 and 69, achieved the objectives of both MKUltra and COINTELPRO. And there were these shady figures around Manson who I'm alleging in the book were part of, they were agents for both of those um, operations. Did you find any evidence Charles Manson was associated with those programs? No, I couldn't find any evidence beyond the fact, the circumstantial evidence that every time he got arrested, and his, his nature of crime escalated. So by the time he was in Los Angeles, he moved his commune from the Haight-Ashbury district to uh, Los Angeles in 68. And they went out to a, ro a remote uh, cowboy dude ranch that they kind of took over in Chatsworth called Spawn Ranch. If anybody's seen Quentin Tarantino's movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it kind of covers that. Um, and during that period, uh, he basically had a get out of jail free card while he was being monitored. So, you know, I have all of the documentation that there were sources on the ranch reporting back to the, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department who was working with the FBI in the COINTEL program about Manson building this arsenal and planning to attack blacks, which is exactly what COINTEL Pro did. They tried to target groups and get them to attack each other and kill each other or, or or commit crimes where they could then go in and arrest them. So it's pretty crazy. But uh, yeah, the, the case I have in the uh, book is circumstantial. Um, I've never found a document saying Charlie was working for us. I've had experts and, you know, even a judge who had Manson in front of him in 68 on a minor charge in Ventura, uh, who also had been a district attorney um, look at all the documents I had and, you know, said there's no way that Manson wasn't some type of informant. He was working for somebody in law enforcement. And I said to him, who, you know, and he said, well, 
That's what you got to find out. It could have been the FBI, the CIA, the DEA, but somebody wanted, he was, his exact quote was, he was more important out on the street than behind bars to someone. Um, so yeah, everything in the book is basically a framework of what ifs. And, and then I asked the question, well, why? Why was this withheld? Bugliosi knew all of this and didn't share it with the defense who would have been able to use it to create reasonable doubt in all different ways that, you know, Manson had people manipulating or pushing him. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, it, hopefully I'm actually getting close to maybe getting some good answers for the second book. And I'm going to try to make my decision within the next six months or so whether or not I'm going to pull the trigger on that. And I'm going to do that if I can get what you just asked for, you know, actual evidence that he was part of these programs. Yeah, my thoughts are maybe that's how he knew what the future held. <laughs> maybe that's yeah. where he's get the ideas from. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, because everything in government's delayed, you know, they're working on something now that people probably won't even realize had been worked on. And well, yeah, 40, I mean, the MK years. Ultra, for instance, you know, it, it was begun in '49, and officially it ended in '73. A lot of people think it didn't end. But in its time, it was the most covert operation that the United States government had ever had. It was the most expensive and it was entirely illegal. The CIA isn't allowed to act domestically. They can't do stuff on our soil. And they were they had, you know, safe houses all over the country. They were testing drugs and hypnosis on prisoners at air at military bases uh, and in the general public for what is that, 20-some years? And then they destroyed all the records in 1973 when they were scared that it was going to be discovered. Is there is there anyone that's known to be in the program that you've ever met or is still around? Yeah, not so much around anymore. But again, I began this in 99. So I interviewed probably three or four uh, witting meaning they knew they were working for MKUltra doctors. Uh, and um, they basically, they minimized what they did or all this stuff came. I mean, if people are interested, it all came out in 1975, 76 and 77. And there were three congressional investigations into it. So the, the CIA officers who ran it, Richard Helms, Sidney Gottlieb, they all had to testify to Congress. And all that stuff is part of the public record. You can look it up, or I, I discuss it pretty thoroughly in my book. They basically had amnesia, ironically. That's what they were trying to create in their subjects, was amnesia of their what they were, had programmed them to do. They couldn't remember. They minimized everything. And the two or three that I spoke to did the same thing. Like, well, we were doing that, but no, it wasn't on unwitting. Everybody signed consent forms and that wasn't true so um and they were all pretty elderly then so there are none that are alive now unless the program continued beyond 73 which that's beyond my pay scale I, all my reporting stops on like 73 74 but a lot of people think that and i think there's a good argument for it they did achieve a lot of their uh, objectives they did i mean jolly west reported to the cia in 1955 that he had learned how to uh, remove true memories in a person and replace them with false ones without their knowledge. So if they figured that how to, how to do that in 55, I'm sure it got, and, and it's a long story, it's in the book, how I found those documents, which are so rare. 
Um, if they could do that then, I think that their technology increased tenfold and they're probably still using it today. I just, every time there's a mass shooting, I get inundated with emails from people who believe that these mass shooters are all Manchurian candidates, MK Ultra victims who are out there doing it for, I just, you know, I can't even respond. I said, look, I'm not, I'm only, my expertise stops in 75 and, you know, you guys find somebody else to look into that. I, I don't want to do it. Yeah. Cause in the book, did you detail like an account of someone committing some sort of crime? Well, yeah. So this Jolly West um, began working in MK Ultra. He accidentally left his correspondence with the CIA in his files and he died about a year or two before I started reporting. And he had been the chairman of the neuroscience department at UCLA, very prominent, ran their uh, psychiatric uh, studies groups and donated his massive uh, files from 40 years of, of research and teaching. And to his dying day, he'd been accused, even on the front page of the New York Times, of being a part of MK Ultra, and he denied it. So they approached him and said he wouldn't do it. And he threatened to sue people if they alleged this. So he went to his grave never being proven. It had only been hypothesized. Well, I found in these files, misfiled these letters between him and Sidney Gottlieb, who was a CIA kind of, uh, well, there's a book that came out a couple of years ago called Poisoner in Chief. But he was the head of the uh, chemical department of the CIA in the 40s, 50s, 60s, till he left in 72. And he was the head of the MK Ultra program. At, and it's basically Jolly West and, and Sidney Gottlieb. And Sidney Gottlieb was using his uh, alias, Sherman Grifford, in these letters, discussing how they're going to do these experiments, how Jolly's going to do these experiments at that time. He was at the Lackland Air Force Base on psychiatric patients there, airmen who were getting psychiatric treatment uh, or, and or prisoners. And during the same period that he contracted to get, you know, test people with these drugs without their knowledge, see if he could create fugue states, amnesias, get them to commit acts against the moral code. There was this horrific rape murder of a three-year-old girl um, in Lackland, Texas, and... Um, the guy who had abducted this little girl in the middle of the night was found near her body in a gravel pit, wandering around in a daze, saying he didn't know how he got there. And he was an airman at Lackman, Lackland who had been treated for these um, migraine headaches for about two years that were so severe, he'd have to be, he, he couldn't be get out of bed for a couple of days. And it's again, it's a long, detailed story, but I believe he was one of Jolly's first experiments that went wrong. You know, I don't think they ever wanted him to go out and kill a three-year-old girl. Um, and I don't think they wanted Sharon Tate and her friends murdered at, at the Tate house. I think things just got, you know, they were experimenting with people's minds and not being regulated. So shit went wrong all the time back then. Well, I'm glad that you wrote the book. <laughs> For anyone that hasn't read it, go ahead and read it and appreciate you having me on, Tom. It was great. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Sweet.